Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. This group perpetrated close to 25 arsons across the Pacific Northwest. There was a lot of destruction, close to $50 million in destruction. People's livelihoods were destroyed. People were traumatized. Their goal was to influence governmental policy, which is the definition of terrorism. Everybody else has been held accountable, and I think uh, she needs to be held accountable. Between 1996 and 2001, a tight-knit cell of radical environmentalists known as The Family executes a campaign of eco-terrorism across the western United States. Part of the Earth Liberation Front Movement, or ELF, The Family is responsible for more than 40 firebombings and other crimes, causing nearly $50 million worth of destruction. The FBI has pursued the elusive members of The Family for over 20 years, bringing all of them to justice except one, a founder of the terrorist group who has managed to vanish into thin air. Originally known as Josephine Sunshine Overacre, this unlikely outlaw has assumed multiple identities over the years, and no one knows if she's living a quiet life in hiding or if she's capable of more acts of terrorism. I'm Steve French. And this is Unsolved Mysteries, Sunshine on the Run. It's Monday, October 19th, 1998. The pre-dawn air is crisp and quiet across the mountainside at the renowned Vail Ski Resort in Colorado. It's the lead-up to ski season, And later that day, work is set to begin on a controversial expansion called the Blue Sky Basin. Suddenly, at 3.30 a.m., the calm is pierced by the sounds of a fire alarm at Vail Ski Patrol headquarters. 24 minutes later, a second alarm sounds a mile east at Camp 1. Four minutes after that, another blares out from the Two Elk Lodge. At 4.10 a.m., authorities receive a 911 call from campers on top of Vail Mountain, and firefighters race to respond. They arrive to find the sky glowing orange. Spread over a mile-long stretch of the mountain, there are eight different structures ablaze. 
By daybreak, all of them are reduced to smoldering rubble. Tonight, local, state, and federal agencies are investigating the attack. The FBI is investigating the suspicious fires as an act of domestic environmental terrorism. The Earth Liberation Front, or ELF, is taking credit for the fires. The Earth Liberation Front wanted to punish a wide array of people who they felt were despoiling the natural world. Brian Denson is a veteran journalist who reported for the Oregonian newspaper for two decades and has written extensively about the Earth Liberation Front. The Earth Liberation Front was really predicated on the idea that autonomous cells of people could inflict this damage and that they could get away with it for a long period of time and perhaps forever. We, the FBI, had been coming up goose eggs. You know, we had been totally unsuccessful. Jane Quimby was an FBI agent who led the Vail arson investigation out of the Denver office. The theory, at least initially on the Vail case, was that it was probably a local group. It's a very isolated area, and it was a pretty difficult task to have this pulled off. And so the idea was that you would have to have had some type of local involvement, somebody that knew the community, knew the mountain, and was obviously embroiled in local issues. We had pretty much tracked down most of the viable leads, interviewed people that were on the mountain, protesters, people that had publicly announced their support for the arson. And pretty much the leads had been exhausted. The Vail arson caused over $12 million in property damage, and the individuals responsible vanished without a trace. The case goes cold in Colorado, but over 1,200 miles west, in Eugene, Oregon, an FBI agent named John Ferreira develops a theory that will eventually lead to a break in the case. Oregon had been a hotbed of environmental terrorism activity. And John's theory from very early on was that these people that were based out of Eugene were kind of a core that was actively involved in arsons way beyond just the Eugene area, but throughout the country. They were a very uh, loose-knit group of protesters, and one of those was Josephine Sunshine Overacre. In 1998, Sunshine is just 23 years old and an unlikely eco-terrorist. She's five foot three, dark-haired, and wouldn't stand out in a crowd. Special Agent Tim Suttles from the FBI's Portland Field Office has tracked Josephine's movements from the time she arrived in Eugene, Oregon, in 1995. Josephine Overacre came to the United States from Canada when her parents divorced, grew up in California, but then at some point moved to Arizona where she graduated high school and then subsequently attended Prescott College in Prescott, Arizona. And that's where we believe she met William Rogers, a geology professor there. Rogers, a passionate environmental activist, embraced a radical philosophy known as deep ecology. He eventually became disenchanted with using civil disobedience tactics and developed the manuals for arson and sabotage that would form the ELF's playbook. William Rogers was a very charismatic individual. He was active within the movement. He was very articulate. He was smart. He was the type of people that inspired others that shared a similar philosophy. And then he was also one of those people that was willing to 
walk the walk and talk the talk. And I think that people found that powerful. In the summer of 1995, William Rogers and Josephine Overaker travel from Arizona to take part in a massive environmental protest an hour south of Eugene, Oregon. It is this event that's the genesis of the terrorist cell known as the family. There was a rather large blockade in Warner Creek, the southern end of the Willamette National Forest, where a lot of activists had attempted to prevent the U.S. Forest Service from logging some uh, old-growth timber. This whole side of the United States came to help out in that protest, which lasted 11 months. The Cascade Mountains during winter is no easy task. And so they were committed, and uh, they eventually uh, won favor, and the trees were not harvested. During that 11 months, a certain number of people, you know, a small group who became the family, they became hardened, if you will, and eventually took it upon themselves to do more to affect change. And what they meant by more was to damage buildings, damage property, and damage companies. They really wanted to stop logging companies, and they wanted to stop the U.S. government from systematically harvesting natural resources. A critical member of this radicalized group is a 23-year-old tattooed street kid named Jacob Ferguson. Jacob Ferguson was a Eugene kid from a broken family. His father was in prison most of his life, so pretty much raised on the streets. Had a lot of street smarts. He's a great mechanic. And Jacob Ferguson and Josephine Overaker began dating while they were out there at Warner Creek. She and Jake were very close and were friends early on. And Jake was very active in the movement. He was very visible. He had a very visible tattoo on his forehead. He was very much more the attention seeker and attention getter. She looked like the stereotypical hippie, you know, straight, dark hair, very little makeup, dressed unremarkably, not wanting to stand out, not wanting to draw attention to herself. She was not the person that was going to be leading the charge, so to speak, but she was a reliable soldier. Shortly after the Warner Creek protests end, Josephine Overaker crosses the line from environmental activist to eco-terrorist. On the night of October 28, 1996, Sunshine and Jacob Ferguson slip back into the Willamette National Forest and attempt to burn down a ranger station in Detroit, Oregon. Two nights later, they strike again, 140 miles away. Using a crude bomb made of diesel fuel, milk jugs, and sponges, they burn the Oak Ridge Ranger Station to the ground. The family's campaign of destruction has begun. The Detroit Ranger Station was burned down by just two people. That was Josephine Overacre and Jacob Ferguson. The Oak Ridge Station, one more person joined, that was Kevin Tubbs. Those were two really defining actions that saw this group taking a very dark turn. The success of the Detroit and Oak Ridge arsons inspires others to take action in the name of the Earth Liberation Front. Cells begin to pop up all across the country, burning and sabotaging businesses and government buildings. The ELF is labeled the nation's leading domestic terrorist threat. 
The group has no formal leaders, but they have very specific rules. The way the guidelines of the Earth Liberation Front were set up, if you want to commit sabotage against these entities that we're against, we will publicize what you've done as long as no one is hurt. If I went out and burned down a Forest Service building and somehow someone died in that, the Earth Liberation Front would not have accepted that, even though the person had done it under the color of the Earth Liberation Front, they still would not have acknowledged it. While many groups take action in the name of the ELF, the family is the most prolific. Over a six-year period, Sunshine, Ferguson, Rogers, and their cell are responsible for over 40 acts of eco-terrorism, including at least 20 arsons. Their covert tactics make the group both effective and elusive. Their operational security was very good. They operated in very small groups, four or five people. They committed an arson or a destruction and never went back to that place, never talked about that place, never told anybody that they did it other than that small group. These were really smart people. Some of the members were highly educated and they were really successful at building firebombs that really worked. They started off very crudely. They were basically just gallon milk jugs, you know, with sponges for igniters when they first started. And then they became very, very sophisticated electronic timed devices. As they progressed, they also were being ever more careful to avoid being caught by circumstantial evidence such as DNA. They made their timing devices in kind of a homemade clean room. They would shoplift a tent from a outdoor store, set it up in a hotel and make timing devices inside that tent after putting on painter's gear and uh, double gloves. The family also devised ways to mask all of their communications, keeping authorities in the dark about their plans. We, the FBI, obviously could trace emails and communications, but what they did, it was actually quite ingenious. They would communicate by drafting an email, and then rather than physically sending that communication, they would just leave it in a draft folder. If I have your email address and I have your password to that account, then I can access it and I can make changes, leave it in the draft folder. So it allowed any number of different people to go in there, view the draft, make necessary modifications or changes, leave that for the next person to look, and they all could have access to the same draft folder by having that common information. Another thing that they did as far as communication is they had what they called the book club, where they would use numbers to identify pages, paragraphs, words within a line on the book, and pull out those words and, and create a message based on a numerical code. And that's very difficult to crack because obviously if for the FBI, we don't know what book they're using. We don't know what these numbers mean. The family goes to great lengths to protect their identities, even from others in the group. Very few of the members even know each other's true names. Instead, they refer to one another only by what they call their forest names. William Rogers went by Avalon. Josephine Overacre was known as Sunshine. We had country girl, country boy, dog, little missy. 
No one wanted to be caught. They all declared that they were in this together, that there would be no snitches, that no one would ever inform. And as long as they kept to that, they would be successful and stay on the run and committing these crimes. The family eventually grows from Rogers, Ferguson, and Sunshine to a cohort of 19 people. Their arson spree targets facilities across the Pacific Northwest, burning trucking companies, slaughterhouses, and horse corrals. As the two-year anniversary of their first arson approaches, the family hits the road to Colorado with the biggest target yet in their sights. There was a group of individuals, including Jake Ferguson, Sunshine, Chelsea Gerlock, and William Rogers that had traveled to Colorado with the intent of committing this arson at Vail. Obviously, it was October. The weather was inclement. They had a lot of difficulties because now they were dealing with high altitude. It was cold. It was snowy. They had some technical difficulties in terms of the timing devices that they intended to use. The enormity of what they were proposing to do, I think, kind of hit the group and they started to become a little bit discouraged thinking, are we really going to be able to pull this off? And so the group, with the exception of Chelsea Gerlock and William Rogers, returned to Oregon with the intent that they would come back at some later point in time. But in spite of the challenges, William Rogers feels this action cannot wait. Sometime after midnight on October 19th, he heads up the mountain alone, determined to set Vale ablaze. He put devices and we believe buckets, plastic buckets with a combination of diesel and fuel oil, placed those around the perimeter of the buildings, then ran across and transporting the fuel mixture himself a mile and a half. And this is probably, I would guess, at least probably 10,000 feet of elevation and torched all these facilities. And then upon completion, ran down the mountain, injured himself, hurt his ankle pretty severely, and then uh, left the area. Hey, Unsolved Mysteries listeners, I'm here to tell you that there's no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. There's a lot of pressure around gifting. I usually have a hard time thinking of gift ideas for family members, and sometimes I get super stressed trying to find the perfect thing. But now with Gift Mode on Etsy, I can search hundreds of gifting personas and find so many incredible items. And I actually just found the perfect gift for my fitness fanatic sister. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Shopping can be a lot of fun, right? But you know what else is fun? Saving money. And Rakuten is the smartest way to save money when you shop. Get cash back at over 3,500 stores across every single category, including fashion, beauty, electronics, home essentials, travel, dining, and so much more. You're already shopping at your favorite stores, so why not be saving while you're doing it? It's a no-brainer. Shop brands like Macy's, Blue Mercury, Petco, Nike, Urban Outfitters, Neiman Marcus, and so much more. Here's how it works. 
the stores pay Rakuten a commission for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the commission with its members. You get paid via check or PayPal quarterly. Maximize your savings by stacking cash back on top of other deals like store sales and coupons. Rakuten has 17 million members who are already saving. Why not join them? Membership is free and it's easy to sign up. Cashback rates change daily. Start all your shopping at Rakuten.com or get the Rakuten app and start saving today. Your cashback really adds up with Rakuten. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. By daybreak, the arson at Vale is national news. Back in Oregon, the other members of the family are in awe of what William Rogers has accomplished. He was responsible for torching all the facilities in conjunction with that arson. It was quite a physical feat. So he was more or less legendary, I would say, within the movement after he committed that Vale arson. It's the largest ELF action to date and a gut punch to Vale's corporate owners. The arson brings attention to the cause of environmentalists, but it also brings judgment and scrutiny. This was kind of a signature event. A lot of people probably had never heard of the Earth Liberation Front until Vail happened. And it also scared a lot of people. There were folks that obviously believed in, you know, preservation of the environment, were particularly happy maybe with logging of areas and wildlife protection and that sort of thing. But I think generally speaking, across the greater environmental community. This escalated things to a whole new level, and I think that soured a lot of people on the movement. Undeterred, the family continues their campaign of destruction. Then, in May of 2001, they plan a bold two-state action. It will prove to be one of their last. The cell known as the family had evolved into the biggest antagonist of genetic engineering, which they thought was a a real hazard to the natural world. And so they had the first two-state arson spree, one in Seattle, Washington, at the University of Washington School of Horticulture. That same night, almost simultaneously, I think within an hour and a half, they hit the Jefferson Poplar Farm, three hours south in a place called Klatskanai, Oregon, believing that Jefferson Poplar Farm was still growing genetically engineered trees. But this time, the family has not done their research. The Poplar Farm is under new ownership, and their trees are no longer genetically modified. They burn to ashes just the same. Worse still, the fire at the University of Washington targeting the office of a genetics professor burns out of control, accidentally destroying the entire building. The errors become a public relations nightmare for the ELF, and fissures begin to develop among the members of the family. Then, on September 11th, 2001, the nation watches in horror as the Twin Towers fall in New York City. All of a sudden, after 9-11, terrorism took on a whole new meaning, and I don't think anybody wanted to be associated with terrorists And I think for them, it was maybe a little bit of a wake-up call to think, you know, what I'm doing is not the right thing. By 9-11, some of the members really believed that what they were doing hadn't really accomplished their goals. For instance, the Vail Ski Resort was rebuilt some one year later. And ultimately, they just quit. Most of them spread out around the country. They were living from New York to Oregon, 
They were very careful to not talk about what they had done or brag about it to spouses or partners or friends. They were on the run and all face really, really long prison terms if caught. And their belief all along was that if none of them ever told, they would never be caught. And of course, we know that one of them did tell, and then the dominoes all began to fall. Josephine Overaker and the other members of the family move on with their lives, getting jobs and starting families. With no new arsons, their trails grow cold, but the government remains committed to tracking them down. In 2004, the FBI steps up their efforts, creating a multi-agency task force dubbed Operation Backfire to revisit the unsolved arson cases and finally bring the ELF to justice. We put together a task force which was based in Eugene, Oregon. It consisted of people from the Forest Service, from the IRS, from obviously ATF, the FBI, the Eugene Police Department. And it wasn't just focused on Vail. That was one of the actions. But obviously, we're looking at probably at least a dozen different things that had taken place, primarily in the Northwest, but across the country. We were looking at Sunshine. She was obviously very active in Eugene, Oregon circles. She was well-known, having been visible at protests. And so she became, a, I, I would say, a very, very high-profile person of interest early on in the investigation. There was a period of time that we decided that we needed to become maybe a little bit more overt, let folks know that we were suspicious of them and kind of put the pressure on to see if we couldn't get somebody to start talking to us and, and maybe cooperate. Without direct evidence, authorities need a snitch, someone inside the group who they can convince to turn against the others. The FBI increases their pressure campaign, bringing in several suspects for questioning in the hopes that one will crack. And eventually, one does. Jacob Ferguson, Sunshine's old boyfriend. John Ferrara, the agent in Eugene, really had kind of called Jake out and said, I, I know you've been involved in these activities. I'm coming for you. I'm, I'm going to get you. It's only a matter of time. Jake started to become a little bit fearful that maybe John really was hot on his tail. And Jake also had a young son at the time that he cared about a lot and I think was concerned about, you know, if he was going to end up in prison for a long time, he wouldn't get to see his son grow up. John probably exploited that vulnerability in Jake and eventually convinced Jake that the best thing to do was to cooperate with our investigation. In 2004, Jacob Ferguson makes a deal. In exchange for immunity from prosecution, he reveals the details of every ELF action he was involved in. He also agrees to betray his former accomplices. Agents hook him up with a wire as he pays social visits to other targets on the FBI's wanted list. He traveled the country from Oregon to New York, meeting with people and saying, hey, remember when? And by God, some of them were willing to talk to him. In fact, most of them did. And they reminisced about their crimes, all of which was being recorded by agents and prosecutors out in these raid bands. They collected all this information and then they began to go visit those people and get them to become cooperating witnesses. On December 7th, 2005, 
FBI agents swoop in and arrest six alleged members of the family in a coordinated five-state operation. When presented with the threat of life in federal prison, most of them choose to cut a deal and inform on the others, leading swiftly to more arrests. We didn't know where Sunshine was at that time, but she was kind of considered more of a peripheral or lesser player, less important, and we really thought we wouldn't have trouble locating her down the road. And that obviously was a mistake. By early 2006, most suspected members of the family have been arrested as part of Operation Backfire. Many cooperate with the government in exchange for reduced sentences. William Rogers takes his own life in prison. Josephine Overaker is the only remaining fugitive of the four suspects not caught in the initial wave of arrests. How is it possible that sunshine has gone completely dark? That truly is one of the mysteries of sunshine. Usually over time, somebody somewhere sees something or says something, and that has not happened in this case. She's looking at substantial federal prison time, obviously, if she's ever caught. And she is the last remaining fugitive. So there's certainly, you know, not a whole lot she can do as far as helping herself in terms of implicating others at this point, because most of those folks have already been arrested and served their time and are actually now back out on the street. It's highly possible that she could have assumed a completely new identity in a new place. And the people that she now associates with have no idea who she really is. Where is Josephine Overaker today? And how has she managed to escape detection all these years? Unless new information comes to light, we may never know the answers. But for those who have spent years pursuing this enigmatic fugitive, solving the mystery of sunshine remains worthwhile. I think it's important to bring her to justice because Josephine Overaker was involved from day one. There was a lot of destruction, people's livelihoods, private companies were destroyed, people were traumatized, and their goal was to influence governmental policy, which is the definition of terrorism. Was she a ringleader? Was she the vicious primary person? No, but she committed multiple crimes over multiple years and she needs to be brought to justice. Protesting, holding a sign or gathering together is one thing. Torching buildings takes it to another level. For me personally, it would be nice just to have the closure and know that we can kind of close the book on that chapter. I'm still working on the case. I review old interviews, old tips, old leads, trying to look for new leads. We do get tips from time to time. Most times they end up with nothing, but there might be that one time where it is actually her. The FBI is offering a $50,000 reward for information leading to the arrest of Josephine Sunshine Overaker. She's believed to now be in her late 40s and is known to go by many aliases. She has a large tattoo of a bird stretching across her upper back. In the past, she has worked as a firefighter, a midwife, a masseuse, and a sheep herder. She is fluent in Spanish, and authorities believe she could be living in Spain. If you have any information, 
please contact the Federal Bureau of Investigation at 1-800-CALL-FBI. Go to tips.fbi.gov or submit a tip at unsolved.com. Next on Unsolved Mysteries. She knows or she's responsible. And I says, I don't know what to say about this. And she says, another thing I'm telling you, they knew I was talking to you, I'd be next. This was in September. A few months later, she was dead. Unsolved Mysteries is a production of Cosgrove Muir Productions and Cadence 13. It is executive produced by Terry Dunmuir and Chris Corcoran. Produced by Lloyd Lockridge, Christine Lenick, Courtney Ennis, Paige Heimson, and Paul Yates. The story producer for this episode was Molly Ryan, and it was edited by Keith Shea. From Cadence 13, editing, mixing, and mastering by Chris Basil, Andy Jaskowitz, and Bill Schultz. Production support by Sean Cherry and Ian Mont. Artwork and design is by Kirk Courtney. Publicity by Josephina Francis and Hilary Schuff. The original theme music was composed by Gary Malkin and Michael Boyd. Thanks for listening to episode 32 of Unsolved Mysteries. Unsolved Mysteries.